0: Uh, this morning I'm doing something a little bit different. We've been in the Psalms, uh, but we're going to bounce around today a little bit. and I'm entitled by message, Jesus in the Psalms. So before we get to it, I want to lead us in prayer. I invite you to join me as we ask for the Lord's help. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are good. Let us now taste and see this from your word. And we know that your word accomplishes everything that you declare. And so to that end, we're praying, Father, that you would give us together that readiness of mind and heart to believe and obey all that you say. We're asking that you would cause your word to transcend the words of a mere man this morning so that we may know Christ, so that we may know the power of his resurrection, and so be made like him in character. That's what we want, God. And I pray that it will happen through this time in your word. For Jesus' sake, amen. As I mentioned, uh, over the past few weeks, we've been looking at the Psalms. And if you've taken any time to read through the Psalms, you'll discover that there are a great many of them were written by King David. King David being Israel's greatest king. He was a very unique figure in history, in their history in particular, as as he was described in the scriptures when he was anointed uh, by Samuel. He was a man after God's own heart. Now, as we read the Psalms, and if you've taken, like I said, if you've taken time to read them, uh, they're really wonderful. And, and you'll notice that oftentimes the songs we sing are, are oftentimes based on Psalms in the scriptures. But when we read them ourselves, I, I, I believe that they can help us pray. If we don't know how to pray, the Psalms can help us to give words to those prayers. The Psalms give us as well words for praise, how to, how to exalt the Lord, what kind of words to use to, to lift up His name and, and to, to enjoy His goodness. The Psalms teach us how to repent. When we've sinned grievously against the Lord, when we've, when we've failed, the Psalms have words for us to express that sorrow for our own sin and, and enjoy uh, God's favor and forgiveness in the face of that repentance. The Psalms as well teach us how to lament, you know, when things aren't going well in life. A lament is a a kind of a sanctified complaint, (laughs) if you will. It's a recognition that, that God sees what's happening, and he is not pleased with evil in the world. He is not pleased with oppression. And it's okay to voice that, and the Psalms can certainly give us language for that. But the psalms also, they what they do is they remind us of how God keeps his promises. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. In fact, the Lord was, was particularly gracious to King David. And as I mentioned, he penned many of the psalms. The Lord revealed to King David the most important promise in all of Scripture, that his own offspring, one in his bloodline, would usher in the Anointed One. So there would be in His bloodline the Anointed One, the, the Anointed One par excellence, the, the Christ. That's, you can find that in 2 Samuel uh, 2, 12 and 13. That's where the promise is made to Him. And along with that promise, I can't help but think that the Holy Spirit revealed to David things about His greater Son not just as king, but as savior. Through several psalms today, uh, I I want us to focus on the gospel of Christ as we see it in the psalms. This is the the prediction of Christ, the the promise of one through whom every promise of God would be fulfilled. The psalms I'll be focusing on, uh, four of them are from King David, and they tell us about, and here's really my outline for this morning, as I'll touch on five unique psalms. Uh, the, The psalms tell us about the Father's will. That's the first thing I want to focus on. Next, that the Christ would be betrayed. That he would be, third, forsaken. Fourth, that he would be raised from the grave. And finally, that Christ himself is the cornerstone of our faith. That's where I'm going this morning. Now, realize this is not a traditional exposition of one particular passage of Scripture, but as I was pondering uh, what to preach this morning, uh, one of the things that I particularly enjoy is when when you come to these various places in the psalm that just highlight Christ. And so I I wanted to uh, invite you into my joy with that this morning. So... Uh, hopefully you will find it encouraging. Well, first of all, the psalm tells us about the Father's will, and we find this in Psalm chapter 40. I'll tell you what the verses are in a moment. Psalm chapter, chapter 40. A question that occupied my mind when I was young, and I'm sure it's that same question that occupies the mind of young Christians today, is what is the will of God? What's the will of God? And often when we ask that question, it's really, it's really I, think, I think we're, at least when I was younger, I was thinking about, well, wanting to know the will of God related to big decisions, right? Education, career, marriage, you know, where to live, things like that. Of course, those are important questions. I'm not diminishing them. But, but a far greater importance is God's will towards us as sinners. And we need the scriptures to tell us what that is. You see, reading from the beginning of the Bible, where we learn about the will of God, right? We can see God's will to bring everything into creation when he said, let there be. And then six days, of course, he he formed this hospitable place and then set his image bearers in in this garden called Eden. That was his will. It's clear because he said it. But then we know the story, or I hope you know the story, when the man and the woman, they abdicated their responsibility before the Lord. Then embedded in that curse... Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman would have his heel bruised by the serpent tempter. But that same seed would bruise the head of the serpent with a fatal blow. That promise, that promise was the father's will to rescue his people from the hell of their own making. From the seed of the woman, fast forward, to the seed of Abraham, to King David's own offspring, what God did over the the unfolding of Scripture. He unfolded His plan to accomplish that. How would God be towards us as sinners? Now, what, what King David and other faithful Israelites understood from the law, given through the Lord gave through Moses, they understood that their sin needed to be atoned for. The law provided for that regular sacrifice. And I'll remind you what it says in Leviticus 17. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So referring here to the animal sacrifice, your sins need to be dealt with, to have fellowship with me, the Lord says. And I've given the blood on the altar for that. Now, now we cannot know what, what David fully understood. But by the by the direction of the Holy Spirit in Psalm 40, verse 6, it gives us their glimpse that the blood of animals was indeed not sufficient in an ultimate sense, and that his promised offspring would ultimately resolve this. And I'll point you to again Psalm 40, verse 6, in sacrifice and offering. You have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. What? Well, what about the law? See, here in the psalm, David is writing that God is not delighted in the sacrifice, in the burnt offering, saying, and, and this, is, this is David's word. You have given me an open ear. Here, what David is doing, he's looking beyond himself to the one who is to come. And I want you to understand this open ear. You have given me an open ear. It implies a, a readiness for a task. Specifically dealing with, and in that context, right? In sacrifice and offering, you've not delighted. Burnt offering, you've not required. But you've given me an open ear. He's looking beyond himself, like I said. And and that open ear implies this readiness for the task of dealing with that issue of the sacrifice. The father not delighting in the sin offerings. So if God does not delight in these sin offerings, what then is the alternative? Verse 7. Then I said, again, David, speaking about the Messiah and the, the one who's to come in the first person. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. Genesis 3.15, seed of the woman. Genesis 15 and the seed of Abraham. I'm not sure if that's the reference. The promise of one to come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. The one... Promised in scripture, the, the scroll of the book. And this one delights to do the will of God because he, he embodies the very law of God and then so fulfills it. Now again, you may wonder, well, how do we know that David is writing in the first person about the Messiah? There's the internal evidence in the psalm. He is effectively declaring the end to animal sacrifice. And the I, I have come to do your will, when David says I. That was the one both prophesied in the scroll and that someone that David could not be. It was not somebody who who was him. It was somebody who was prepared to do the will of God. So he had to be forward-looking. But if you're unsure there, to remove all doubt, we can move to the other end of the Bible. The Holy Spirit moved the writer of Hebrews to state it more explicitly, commenting on Psalm 40 and applying it to Christ. The writer there says, for it is impossible. Here's the un unpacking of this, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, consequently, this is, I should tell you the reference, Hebrews 10, 4 through 7. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, going back to the psalm, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure, Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, I realize if you're reading closely and comparing the Hebrews uh, passage with the Psalm 40 passage, you're going to see some some slight differences. Psalm 46 says, You've given me an open ear. Hebrews 10.5 says, But a body you have prepared for me. This isn't, I don't want to get too wonky here source material for the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, slightly different than the Masoretic text. So don't worry too much about that. But the essence of what the psalm is saying is this, in, in both quotes is the same. In Psalm 40, verse 6, the open ear implies this readiness for the task, not just hearing, a readiness for the task. And that task is needing some blood atonement, a sacrifice needing a body. And Hebrews 10.5 states it explicitly. What Psalm 40 is telling us is no less, predicting no less than the incarnation of the Son of God. The Psalms promised it, and it was fulfilled. Like I said, the Son of God took on a human body. He came to earth to accomplish the will of the Father, the saving of God's people. Jesus said this, John 6, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. A body. The incarnation of the Christ predicted in the Psalms is the very will of God. Send his Son as a once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of His people. From the beginning, it has been God's will not to condemn His people. What is God's will towards you? Not to condemn, but to save. Now we feel, we feel this, don't we? Our sin is condemnable. The Scripture makes that clear. But it has been the will of the Father Ever since the man and woman in the garden sinned, and we all, like them after, have done the same, God's posture towards you has been to save through giving his son. Well, that was the plan, but how? The Psalms then give us a glimpse into that plan, and so take us to the next Psalm. The Psalms predicted that Christ will be betrayed, and we find that in Psalm 41, just the next one over. If you're following in your Bibles. Now, we get this. It's not surprising that the petty thief eventually finds a way to embezzle millions. That doesn't surprise us. It's not surprising when a violent person eventually commits murder. There's this kind of progression of evil that takes hold in the mind of one bent on evil. But when a trusted confidant, when a close friend suddenly turns on you when your husband or wife of 25 years is unfaithful. These kinds of things are perplexing. They're disorienting. The things that you thought were immovable have crumbled away. And there's this psychological wound that, that is so very profound. You didn't see it coming. As Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, you get that sense in there, right? Et tu, Brute? It's like, what? You feel it of course, all sin is evil, but there's something about a betrayal. And I'm not saying it's, it's more sinful, or, but there's something about it that's surprising. It's, it's kind of of a different kind in that sense, because it's so unexpected. And what a betrayal does, it proves, it proves that nothing at all, nothing at all is immune from sin's effects. The very best thing can become the worst thing in a split second. That's what betrayal is. Now, David, in Psalm 41, he expresses his trust in the Lord. He expresses his trust in the Lord for his mercy, even in the face of adversity. That adversity could be sickness or or enemies. And I I take it enemies that he didn't know he had. Now, what he's doing in the Psalm 41, verse 9, by the Holy Spirit, he was speaking of the experience of the Christ. 41 verse 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Now, we know this applies to Jesus because when he was gathered with his disciples in the upper room, it's the occasion where he washed the disciples' feet. And what he did was he encouraged them, imitate my example. As as you see me do, do likewise. Be sacrificial. Serve others. But then he said this, verse 17 of of John chapter 13. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Then he says this, and it must have been seeming rather cryptic to the rest of his disciples. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. And then quoting Psalm 41.9. He who ate my bread is lifted up, lifted his heel against me. Of course, we know he was speaking of Judas. Now, this had to happen. But how? I mean, it, it's surprising. We know the story. Of course, Judas, Judas, there's Judas. We, we just take it for granted. Well, he betrayed Jesus. But how did that happen? Why did it happen? Yes, it was prophesied. Well, the stage had already been set, of course. When John introduced Jesus at the beginning of his gospel, he wrote about the word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Right? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then he says this, verse 11 of John 1. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Of course, since the beginning, people have rebelled against God. So it's not surprising that many who should have welcomed Jesus rejected him. So the rejection of the the populace, a great number of people who should have welcomed Jesus, set the stage for the possibility of Judas. Now, understand this. Sin, sin, the, the presence of sin, it was both the reason for the Son of God to become a sacrifice for sin. Okay, it was the reason. Because there's sin, there needs to be a sacrifice. So it was the reason for him to become a sacrifice for sin. But sin was also the instrumental cause for his death. And what I mean by that is that this was planned, this was needed. He needed to be a sacrifice for sin. But Judas, in his own rebellion, and in his own unbelief, found his way into that plan walking closely with Jesus. He saw the miracles. He probably even participated in some of them. He probably preached about Jesus, and and he probably saw people genuinely respond in faith. But in the end, he didn't wholeheartedly believe in Jesus. And it would seem, again, we don't know what's in his heart, except evil, it would seem he had a different vision. Listen, as I thought about this, I think we all have to come to terms with the fact that the spirit of Judas is in all of us. It's the same spirit that tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. It's the same spirit that causes any one of us to sin. And the difference between Judas and any one of us, well, let me put it this way. There are still Judases in the world. And here's, as I thought about it, here's the test. You're a Judas if you don't think it would be possible that you'd be a Judas. That's what it comes down to. If you look at that story and go, ah, I wouldn't do that. I think you're fooling yourself. See, the difference between Judas and the rest who are in the family of God, is that they recognize in themselves the very spirit of Judas, and they say, God, be merciful to me. Well, Jesus was betrayed, and the Psalms predicted it. There's a song that we sing. Um, Can't remember exactly the, the, the title of the song, but the line is, Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that put him there. We have to come to terms with that, brothers and sisters. Well, if you're a brother and sister in Christ, I trust you already have come to terms with that. So friend, if you're not in Christ today, that's what you've got to come to terms with. The spirit of Judas in you to reject Jesus. And the path to the welcome into the family of God is simply repent and trust in Christ. While well, the Psalms predicted that he would be betrayed, the Psalms also predicted that Christ will be forsaken. Forsaken, and that's from Psalm 22. Now, you might abandon a goal that seems no longer worthy to you of pursuing. You might leave behind unnecessary equipment in a mountain climb, Right? Um, You should absolutely get yourself free from an addiction or from evil influences, but you don't forsake the ones you love, or at least you shouldn't. Yet we all know that that sometimes happens in life. There's that friend that ghosted you. Maybe as a child you were abandoned by your parents, or perhaps you're a wife whose husband just up and left. Well, it. David does in the psalm, he expresses this feeling of abandonment and he directs that towards God. Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Now, we don't know what exactly David was experiencing when he penned these, but I would suggest to you again, the Holy Spirit gave him the experience and these thoughts to express in advance so that he would communicate what the Christ would experience in a much, much greater way. So as we fast forward through history, as his life was ebbing away, but but more than that, Jesus knowing that as he hung on the cross, he carried in his body all the ugliness of sin, not his own. And while he absorbed While he did that, he absorbed the wrath of God for it. And and the opening verse of Psalm 22 was his cry. Jesus was forsaken. Listen, Jesus was forsaken by his own father so that his father could be our father. Now, that we see how, this, how it unfolded. As, as heinous as the crime against the sinless Son of God is, the Father did not intervene. And just as the Holy Spirit revealed to David, who was speaking metaphorically about himself, he was ultimately describing the physical experience of Christ, feeling forsaken. And it's remarkable what david says in metaphorical language was accomplished physically verse 16 for dogs encompass me a company of evil doers encircles me they have pierced my hands and feet verse 18 they divide my garments among them and for my clothing cast lots David, using metaphorical language, Jesus experienced as his hands and feet were pierced with nails as they took his clothing from him and rolled the dice to decide who'd get to take it home. Now listen, just a side note here. This is just one example among among many that reveals the divine authorship of the scriptures and the divinity of Jesus. And I suppose when you think of the way in which Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? As is recorded in the Gospels. I, I suppose in some sense it's possible that one knowing the scriptures could at that moment then personalize them, right? Mere human, okay? Could, could personalize them and say, God, you've forsaken me and using that, that passage. But we got to get this. There's no mere man could plan in advance to be crucified the way he was and then somehow ensure that the soldiers would roll the dice to to decide who would take home his clothes. Now that's, that's divine, David speaking by the Holy Spirit wrote. But what this points to, of course, is that Jesus was ultimately forsaken by the Father. He had to be, because he carried our sin. So that in him, you and I could be accepted. The Apostle Paul writes in a different way about the same reality in Galatians chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. That's a statement from the law. Israelites were not to leave a body hanging overnight, for cursed is one who is hanged on a tree. But by God's design and purpose and plan, the Father determined that Christ would be cursed and hung on a tree, and he became a curse for us. So for our sake, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, I quote it often, but it's glorious, for our sake he made he that is god the father made him that is the son of god to be sin who knew no sin so that here's what gets accomplished in him we might become the righteousness of god so because of faith because you believe and because of christ and what he has accomplished You are in Him. And because you're in Him, you have become the righteousness of God. And So you can never, ever, for all eternity, ever, ever again, be forsaken by God. He keeps His promises. And I'll remind you what Moses told Joshua as he was handing the baton of leadership to him. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Brothers and sisters, you're in Christ today. Hold on to that. Christ was forsaken so that you could be accepted, predicted in the Psalms, and fulfilled. Fourth, Psalms tell us that Christ was raised. Well, from the perspective of the Psalm, will be raised. So Psalm 16. Psalm 16, that's what we're looking Now, of course, it's natural to fear death, right? Uh, Even though most people believe in some kind of existence beyond mortal life, clearly, and this is obvious, most do their best to forestall the inevitable, right? Even though it's a common sentiment at funerals, you, you would hear this, whether they're believers or not, she, he's in a better place. They say that, but really... If you were to have your choice, everyone would rather have their loved one back, bodily, physically, here, now. Now, Of course, the psalmist, David, has no illusions about avoiding the inevitable. Nonetheless, in Psalm 16, David prayed for protection from death. Now, maybe he felt some sort of particular threat from his enemies, we don't know. I was speculating about this. Maybe he wrote the psalm following at some point his anointing as king. Right? Maybe he wrote the psalm following his, that anointing. But then prior to the death of Saul, because Saul had it in to kill him, he was bent on killing him. And so this is what it says in Psalm sixteen, eight through 10. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I, sh- I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to shale, that is the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. Like other Psalms predicting the Christ, I, I believe the Holy Spirit means for us to see a deeper meaning here. And unlike David, who expected that the Lord would protect him from death, We know that Jesus had to die, and the apostles understood that Jesus had to die so that our sin could be atoned for. But this is a prayer or an expression that Jesus would be protected through death. David was believed, prayed that he would be protected from death. This is an expression that the Christ will be protected through death. We get this. Bodies without brain activity, without beating hearts, without lungs that, that take in oxygen. If, if that stuff's not happening, the body decays, right? But not so the Son of God. Because the Son of God was sinless in His own body, so he, he would not, He could not be subject to the same consequence in death as the rest of us. Sin makes things rot. So when Jesus was buried in the tomb, He took our sin, for all who believed. He took your sin and, and its spiritual consequence to the grave, and He left it there. So it wasn't on him anymore. He left it there. And on the third day, he emerged from that tomb in victory over sin and death. And and as proof, as proof of Jesus' resurrection being foretold and moved, of course, by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Peter quoted this this very psalm in his Pentecost sermon. You can find that in Acts 2. And God used that sermon in a miraculous way to bring thousands, thousands to repentance and faith in Christ. And the Apostle Paul also quoted part of it. Uh, in his uh, in his uh, sermon at Antioch in Pisidia. That's Acts 13. Listen, I, ho- I hope you know this. I think you know this. The resurrection of Jesus from the grave is not just a side benefit of our forgiveness. Our forgiveness is, is granted to us because Jesus paid the penalty of our sin. He bore the wrath of God and was buried and left that sin there. But if he was not raised... The whole thing falls apart. If Christ was not raised, then death would have won, and sin would not have ultimately been defeated. That's what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, standing up here telling you about Jesus is a pointless exercise, if that didn't happen, listen, we should just all go home, live your life, eat, drink, and be merry, because we're going to die. You know, there's some so-called churches that that preach about Jesus. They, They love to teach about His ethics, right? They like His example, but they ultimately deny that Jesus Christ was raised. Frankly, I don't know why they bother. What hope is there in a dead Savior? I hope you know this. Every time we gather like this in the Lord's Day, it's like Resurrection Sunday. We preach Christ crucified and raised. That's what we do. And our our eternal hope is anchored in the the singular fact that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was raised to life according to the Scriptures, and that upwards of, of 500 people witnessed that fact. And he is alive now. They saw him alive, and he has ascended to the Father's right hand where he rules until he brings everything in subjection to him, 1 Corinthians 15. I'll read it. Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man, Jesus Christ, has also come the resurrection of the dead. Or as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So if you've trusted in Christ this morning, you are spiritually alive. You, you, can, you can count on that. You are, the scripture says, a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And you can be sure of this, that just as you are now spiritually alive, when Christ returns, you will be physically alive forevermore. You will have a body just like his. Christ was raised. Christ had to be raised. And the Psalms unveil that for us. Finally, Christ is the cornerstone. Christ is the cornerstone. We find this from Psalm 118. This is not a Psalm of David. Now, uh, theists, uh, if you know the definition, theists are really people who believe that there is a God or gods. They have some sense of the transcendent, so among Theists there are Muslims, Jews, Hindus, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses and of course Christians. But there is only one true God. And he has made it very clear in the scripture and specifically I would suggest to you that through the Psalms that there is only one way to know him. Only one way. There are not multiple paths. One way. The Psalmist in Psalm 118 expresses his gratitude for, for the steadfast love of the Lord. And he, he cites the Lord as, as his help and, and his refuge from his enemies. And, and he acknowledges that the Lord disciplines him for his good. And he states that, the, the, that salvation and the way of righteousness has been opened to him. And he understands as well that ignoring God's provision, it is the inclination of man to seek his own way to God, which is ultimately futility. And he says this, Psalm 118.22, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Salvation is the Lord's doing, and the entire structure of true faith, the totality of God's revelation, the singular path to God is the cornerstone who is Christ. The prophet Isaiah says this Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Jesus teaching the crowds, and this was in the context of the tar- parable of the tenants. Jesus there was describing how his own People who say that they believe in God would ultimately reject him. And then quoting this, Psalm 118, and applying it to himself, he says this. What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's a question. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. There is... No true faith in God apart from Christ. There's no true faith in God apart from Christ. I'm grateful for people in the world who believe in, in God. But at the end of time, when we stand before the judgment seat, the only ones who will be welcomed into the eternal family of God are the ones who have put their faith in Christ because He is the cornerstone. Without the cornerstone, the whole building falls Lots of people have faith, I get that. But without the right object, they're lost. Reflecting on God's promise of an eternal home for his people in fellowship with him, Jesus said this, believe in God, believe also in me. Those two are connected. Believe in God, believe also in me. And you could conclude this, you don't believe in me, you really don't believe in God. So what does it mean to believe in Jesus? It's believing what the scriptures reveal about him. It's believing what the Psalms reveal about him. Again, that the Son of God took on a human body to become the once for all sacrifice for our sin. That he was betrayed by his own that he was forsaken by the Father when he absorbed the, the wrath of God for our sin at the cross, that he was buried in the tomb, that his body did not see corruption, that he rose from the grave on the third day. This is our faith, brothers and sisters. From Genesis to Revelation and in the Psalms, Christ has been revealed. So let me encourage you, if you have not done so, look to Christ to be saved from your sin. Look to him. Apart from him, you cannot be saved. Apart from what he has accomplished for you at the cross, you will not be saved. You will only be condemned. And and the gift is, is laid out before you in the scriptures. Receive it by faith. And if you're already a believer in Jesus, look to Christ daily to be freed from sin's power. That's how you get victory over sin. Aaron prayed that we would be righteous. The only way it happens is constantly looking to Christ. He will give you victory over those those sins that, that constantly annoy you and creep into your mind. Look to Christ to be freed from sin's power. Look to Christ to endure suffering. When things get hard, when disease comes, when family seems to be fractured, when you lose your economic stability, when whatever happens in this world, you need to see something beyond the here and now. Look to Christ to endure that suffering. You want to be happy? Things in this world are going to let you down. So many have attested, you know, you pursue money and success, it's like, well, okay, now I got it. Nah. It doesn't satisfy. You want joy? Eternal, lasting joy? Look to Christ. Look to Christ for your eternal hope. Look to Christ in all that you do. Let me leave you with this exhortation from Hebrews 12. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray together. Father, we... We see in the unfolding of your word the, just the glorious way that you have set the groundwork and, and have given us glimpses of your, your goodness to provide a way to ultimately reveal Christ to us. And Lord, I, my only prayer this morning is that we would all be found in him, that we would be constantly looking to him and delighting in him, Lord, for those who are who are far from you, that they would look to him and be saved. God, really isn't there any, there isn't really any other reason to exist, to gather, to do anything apart from what Christ has. And so, God, would you would you keep us as your people, keep our eyes fixed on him who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And Lord, we pray that you would keep us faithful to that day of his return. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.